Podcast One production. The Health Hacker with Adam McDougall. And on this episode, we're answering the question on how science can help us get the best gut health possible. And as we know, gut health leads to so many health benefits. So it's a great question to be asking. So on this episode, to help us answer that, we're asking the help of two women, Dr. Emma Beckett from Newcastle University, who's a molecular nutritionist, and Nicole Dynan, who's a gut health dietitian. If you want us to hack into anything for you specifically, like we've been getting these requests more about gut health, hit up Adam at healthhacker at themanshake.com.au via his Manshake socials or at manshake.com.au. He's always giving away prize packs as well. So jump on there, get in touch with him and let us know what you want Adam to hack into for you. Well, I love your dress, by the way. Before we start, people uh, must get on and uh, have a look at uh, Dr. Emma's dress. It's avocados and she's got earrings in which are Eggs in a pan. Very uh, well done. I have a new food dress and earring combo on my socials every day. So yeah, and bring, how do we bring, follow you? What's that? I'm at Synapse 101 on Twitter. Um, <laughs> bring a little bit of joy to the the food and nutrition discussion each day. Love it, love it. So, Dr. Emma Beckett, my question is to you first. What's a molecular nutritionist? <laughs> So molecular nutritionist is the term I use to describe myself because I'm a nutrition scientist and people are don't really like experts these days and scientists kind of makes people think you're a particular type of person who can't speak to people. <laughs> um, but I use molecular nutritionists to differentiate because most people out um, in the world don't really understand the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist and a scientist. And they think um, that they can ask me for their personalized advice when really what nutritionists and nutrition scientists do is we do the research, we we find the evidence to tell the dietitians what they need to do in practice, yep. um, and we don't give personalized advice to people. So I use molecular because I, I spend my day in the lab and really unpicking what's going on in the human body and how we interact with food. And people don't realise food is information, I always say, how complex food is and the effect it has not only on our body but on our minds. So. People don't realise food is a science because we all eat, so everybody feels like an expert and really there's a lot more to it than that. And Nicole, a gut health dietitian, explain to people what that is. Yeah, so I'm probably following on from Emma, like I translate the science that she um, finds um, into real terms for people so that they know exactly how to apply that to their own eating and get the most out of their food to, you know, get energy and feel vital, you know, help their immunity, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I'm probably the translationist. So is that <laughs> such a word? Um, yeah, taking the science and making it real for people. Making it applicable and, and, and I suppose digestible for people to understand. Yes, good pun. <laughs> <laughs> and the gut, why is it such a trending thing at the moment. It's just exploded in the last couple of years. I know in my field of work with um, health and fitness, it's something that's really just become all consuming. Can you both explain why you think the gut's so important? Um, I think it's so important and I think it's probably so exciting for people because it gives us hope that there's more to it. Do you know what I mean in yep. terms of our health? So um, before we were sort of relying on medications and you know, putting Band-Aids on the problem, whereas now we actually feel a bit more empowered to take food and take control of our bodies um, by eating well, feeding that microbiome and actually then, you know, being able to have some control over our chronic disease and that sort of thing. So I think people are just excited because there's a new field opening up 
that we've never really been able to explore much in the past. And Dr. Ember, what do you think? I think that's the key. We've really got new research methods that have evolved over the last, you know, 10 and 20 years. When I was in undergrad, when I was doing my bachelor in biomedical science, we got told that the microbes in the gut, their only job was to stop the bad bacteria from getting in. That's what I learned in immunology, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And now we're, we're learning so much more about it because we have much better methods of measuring what's going on in the gut um, and measuring how that interacts with food. So as we've evolved in our science and how we can study genes and bacteria and DNA and how all those things interact, suddenly there's so much more information and more information is more power and we can do more things with that now. So where does the story of the gut start, in your opinion? Obviously, we hear these words, the average person, microbiome, good gut bacteria, bad gut bacteria. How would an average person out there really start to navigate their way through all this language? So the the microbiome is the sum of all of the organisms that live in in or on us. So the gut microbiome is specifically all the microorganisms, that's bacteria, that's viruses, that's fungus, that's <laughs> all kinds of little weird things um, that live inside our gut. So most of it's bacteria. So yep. mostly when you hear people talk about microbiome, um, they're talking about bacteria. Microbiome sometimes scientifically is used to talk about just the genes because the genes, uh, the DNA that's in these things is how we study them. Or microbiota, they might hear to refer to the entire mass. But most of the time people are talking about the bacteria because that's what the most of it is. And that's what we know the most about um, as to what's going on in there. And then people talk about probiotics and prebiotics and how they benefit the gut. Can you expand on that? Yeah. So the the probiotics are the good bacteria. They're the bacteria we want to add in to grow more of the good bacteria in our guts. And then the prebiotics, they're bacteria food. They're they're what the good bacteria eat in, in order to flourish. So advice to people, how do we start to control our gut environment to make it a positive one? So I think, you know, leading on from that prebiotic um, story, then we've sort of learned that if we feed our gut bacteria well, um, particularly with foods high in fibre, so like whole grains, cereals, fruits, vegetables, legumes, that sort of thing, then we can help them proliferate. And we can also, if we're eating a wide variety of those foods, we're feeding a wide variety of those bacteria. So we have a more diverse microbiome. So what we know with gut health is the more diverse the bugs in there, the healthier we are. So we're always looking to sort of have a very broad diet as I'm, well. I'm picking up on a couple of things here that jump out for, for people out there is firstly, fibre's key mm-hmm. to feeding our gut health. Yep. Um, and secondly, diversity in our diet is very important as well. So that's where going down the path of a carnivore diet or, you know, a total exclusive exclusion style of diet where you exclude certain food types can be dangerous as far as our gut health goes. Would that be right? Yes, I think so. So, you know, if we go on these fad diets and we're cutting out entire food groups and or we're just focusing um, specifically on one food group, then we do run the risk of shrinking the diversity of our microbiome. So we, we want to make sure we've got that whole broad range of food groups and food um, so that we can support it in addition to things like sleep and exercise, you know, that sort of thing as well. Um, and hydrating well, all yep. of those things help. Yeah, so expand on yep. that. So obviously our, our choices we make on a daily basis outside of diet, there's also other things that can affect our gut health and our diversity. Exercise, stress, sleep, can we, we expand on that? 
Well, I think all of those things matter. Obviously, um, if you're you're stressed, that's going to have an effect on gut motility and, you know, how quickly things move through the gut that can upset your gut health. Um, Obviously, when we're not sleeping well, that has a knock on effect to everything. And also we make poor dietary choices when we're we're not sleeping well. Um, But I think those are things that we often can't control in our lives. You know, we all live live busy lives and, you know, sleep and stress and and all those things. are often out of our control, but the diet is is the one that, that we always come back to, not just because I'm a nutritionist and Nicole's yeah. a dietitian, yeah. but because that's something we can really take control of. And I guess physical activity as well and linking those two things together, getting the right amount of physical activity. Physical activity is great um, in terms of gut health, gut motility. Food moves faster through your gut um, if you go for a walk after lunch, for example. Um, so, you know, those kinds of things, pairing them together. But the diet's the one that we can really take charge of um, and, and, you know, do the, the getting more fiber in and getting more fruit and veg and cereals and, and all of those good plant-based foods yep. in. That's, that's a change we can all make. I, I mean, I can't control the stress in my life most of the time and yep. I probably couldn't get more sleep if I tried, but <laughs> I can definitely make sure I eat um, a healthy, balanced diet. Well, our audience loves hacks, so they love to compress things mm. down into, into simple takeaways. If you had to pick five foods each to improve your gut health, what would they be on a personal level? Everyone's different. We know that everyone's microbiome's different. We want diversity. But for you personally, what would you recommend? Um, I have a bit of an obsession with legumes, I have to say. So some people um, aren't familiar with that term. So it would be things like uh, chickpeas and lentils and beans, those sorts of things. So, you know, the recommendations are that we include those in our diet, you know, maybe three times a week, but I personally would say I probably eat them every day. Yeah. <laughs> um, so legumes without fail for me. Um, whole grains as well, whole grains and cereal grains. I think, you know, there's been a lot of discussion over the years of people cutting out carbohydrates to manage their weight and all that sort of thing. Um, but the evidence really isn't there with yep. that. And when we do that, we actually run the risk of not being able to feed our microbiome well. Um, so I would definitely include whole grains in my list. Uh, green leafy veg. I'm taking them all. Sorry, Emma. Oh, that's good. <laughs> um, green leafy vegetables. I suffer withdrawal symptoms if I'm not having that every day. Um, fruit every day. And nuts and seeds I eat as well. So sorry, all I've right. pretty much taken them all. That's right. I don't need five because... <laughs> yeah. right. I would say if you if you want to break it down and make it easy and the one simple thing we can all do yep. is we don't need it to be expensive. We yep. don't need it to be Instagrammable. Yep. We don't need it to be sexy, which I think a lot of these diets are about, like yep. make make your food, food beautiful and eat the acai and the chia <laughs> and all those things. You don't need those. My trick to make sure that... I'm getting everything I need for my gut each day. Do it at the start of the day. Do it at breakfast. Yep. So a high fiber cereal, so something like all brand, oh, Sultana brand that has both types of fiber, the soluble and the insoluble in it. Pair it with yogurt because that has the probiotics, probiotics in yeah, it. Yeah. Pair it with fruit because fruit also has fiber, has all of the phytonutrients, has all of the, the good things that we need from food and add some honey. And you've literally got everything you need for gut health right there in that meal. You're done at breakfast. The rest of the day, you just concentrate on getting some veg and getting some some meats and, and those other things we need in and you're done. So start the day right. Like they, breakfast is the most important meal. We do say that and um, the data does stack up on that. Um, so whether you eat breakfast first thing in the morning or later in the day because you're fasting, yep. get everything in first thing, the fiber in the cereal and the fruit and the probiotics in the yogurt, honey to make it taste good and add some extra goodness and you're done. Well, I really want to expand on 
There's mm. so much information, misinformation, information overload. People do get confused. For example, you touched upon legumes. For example, a really popular guy out there is Dr. Stephen Gundry, for example. Mm. He talks about the anti-nutrients in, in legumes mm. and whatnot and, you know, trying to sell a book like most people out there. But um, can you expand on why that's not actually true? And obviously, if you are paranoid about the anti-nutrients and the lectins and all these things that they scare you with, you can pressure cook legumes, which obviously helps with digestion. But, you know, can you talk about that as well as the fact carbohydrates was the other one, which is a really interesting one. People now are going on these ketogenic diets, um, extreme styles of diets where they have no carbohydrates at all. And they... I always say that people want to lose weight. That's probably the biggest thing that people ask me all the time. And they go from a diet, which is, you know, high in carbohydrates, let's call it 400 grams a day. And then they go to zero <laughs> grams of carbohydrates and they've got nowhere to go once they lose that first little bit of water weight and, and weight to start with. Um, but they don't understand the gut microbiome and the importance of obviously not feeding that, how that petitions calories into muscle and, and doesn't store it as fat. So can you just sort of talk about the fear of going too extreme with some of these diets? Um, so with the legumes, exactly what you said. So um, they do have anti-nutrients in them, lectins, but when you cook those, because we don't eat those things raw, right? Mm. When you cook them, you actually break those down. So it's really not a problem mm. um, in human digestion. There'd be very few people that would actually suffer that problem. Am I right in saying that? Correct. Mm. And so and so, let's just throw that one out to start with. Cool. Yeah. So when we when we come across those things on media, someone is trying to sell something yeah. generally. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's always a grain of scientific truth. Yeah. So yes, there are nutrients that or compounds that will prevent the absorption of other nutrients. Yes, that happens. It doesn't mean that eating foods that have those things in it destroys the nutritional properties yeah. of, of the foods you're eating. So there's always a nugget of truth that just gets twisted yeah. when it gets put into the public sphere. Yeah, find that tiny thing and, and hang on to that. <laughs> and then the next question I want to ask yeah. once again on trends is yeah. you see these people going on extreme diets now where they eliminate carbohydrates totally, you know, the ketogenic diet where it's just fat, mm. um, but they don't pay respect to the whole body system. Body, The human body doesn't work in subsystems. We work as a whole system. So people try to get nutrition out of a supplement, but that's not how the food yeah. comes yeah. How the food works. How the food works. Yeah. So can you talk about people going on an extreme diet and the effects yeah. that will have on fat loss, particularly with gut microbiome? Yeah, for sure. So with the ketogenic diet, for example, that's actually a medical diet. It was first developed for people like children that were having uncontrollable seizures. So if you put them on a ketogenic diet, it helps with managing their seizures. Mm -hmm. So that's really where that diet fits medically. Um, so that was picked up um, by a few people who once again wanted to make something out of yep. that diet. And so a lot of people do sort of favor it at the moment, but I see them in my practice every day and I can tell when I, I meet them in the waiting room that that's the diet that they're on. How do you tell? Because they're quite, um, they're quite anxious or they're quite ag agitated. Um, their brain's not getting the carbohydrate that it really wants. And so they, they can actually exhibit that in behavioral, um, Symptoms. This is why they all troll me on mm. social media. Yeah. <laughs> I thought they might have had a stick of yeah, butter around get, their neck. They get quite angry. So I didn't know if they had a stick of butter around their neck yeah, or some right. bacon or, or whatnot. But anyway. Yeah. And it was actually the same with paleo. I could always spot someone yeah. who was on a paleo diet. So um, so your brain does prefer carbohydrate as a source of fuel. And, you know, we want to make sure our brain is working well yep. and functioning well. We've all got, you know, high intense jobs these days. And in addition to that, it is the fuel that the, the gut bacteria love the most. Mm. So if we're taking away carbohydrate um, and all the fibre that comes with it, 
then we're essentially starving the microbiome. So people on a ketogenic diet um, or restrictive diets do tend to have a more narrow uh, range of bacteria in their gut. Yeah. And that plays a huge impact on losing weight too, doesn't it? Can, I, yeah, can I expand on that? Because yeah. a lot of the time people are going on low-carbohydrate diets to lose weight, yeah. um, which is fine if your goal in the short term is to lose weight. But we have to remember we're eating for our health for our lifespan. Yep. And there's good data now, two recent large meta-analyses, which are when we take all the studies and put them together and look at the whole of the data. Diet fit, wasn't it? That was the... The oh, I always recent. forget their names, but there were yep. two large ones that came out yep. recently. Um, and they both showed that uh, low carbohydrate diets increase the risks of all the diseases that we're trying to avoid through weight loss. So weight, you know, in high weight is linked to diabetes, cardiovascular disease and and some cancers. We, we saw an an increase in those diseases in the people on the lowest carb diets. And that's because they've in, inadvertently cut out the fiber in trying to cut out the refined and processed carbs. So they're forgetting about uh, carbohydrate quality in that. And that's actually doing people damage. And people are very focused on weight. But I've been everywhere between 50 kilos and 150 kilos yeah. in my life. And I'm in the middle now. In the middle now, I can run half marathons. I do 5Ks on the weekend for fun. I lift weights. I'm active. I'm healthy. I'm happy. I wasn't healthy at either of those extreme weights. You're healthy and you're happy. And that's the most important thing. And I think yeah. that's the disconnect in society. So we all have to stop focusing on nutrition for yep. losing weight because that's just one element of health. It's not all that it's about. And if you're destroying your gut bacteria and your blood and your brain and everything else in the meantime and your joy, yep. we have to eat every day. 100%. So yeah, don't don't get great stuck on message. weight. I love that. Such a great message and, and a powerful one as well. So how do we get through all the BS with all these research studies that are coming out now and um, so much information. You turn on the news in one minute, they're telling you not to eat this food, to go on this fad diet. As researchers, how do we find bad science and good science as a punter? I'm going to say stop listening to the news and stop listening to the headlines <laughs> because that's not how we communicate changes in okay. the standard recommendations. If the if the standard recommendations are, tra are changing, that's when we'll update the Australian Dietary Guidelines and the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating. And those are the standards of what people should be eating. Just because a study comes out and shows one thing or the other thing or gets flipped in the media a certain way, it doesn't mean that that's a change in the recommendations. Now, there will be people selling things who will say, oh, but aren't the Australian Dietary Guidelines broken? Uh, isn't there problems with them? Don't they promote eating sugary cereals and junk food? They really don't. They promote eating high-fibre cereals. They promote eating diversity. They promote eating our fruit and our veg and our legumes and our dairy and our lean meats, and they promote all the things that we should be eating. So everyone needs to stop getting distracted by the shiny baubles and yeah. the the quick wins and just go back to basics and look at that uh, Australian Guide to Healthy Eating. Yeah. And I would say the same because those guidelines are actually based on 55,000 research papers. Yep. So it wasn't like it was just one paper that's been pulled out for a news headline or anything like that. So I always say to people, you know, just stop and ask yourself, where are you actually getting your nutrition information from? And is it a credible source or is it something, you know, that's a, a celebrity influencer, um, you know, or something online, you know, are you getting credible information? Um, I actually have a, one that might derail it a little bit. What are your <laughs> thoughts on bone broth? If people talk a lot about bone broth for collagen and for the stomach lining and things like that. True, not true, something we should have, we should be adopted from our ancients or not? 
your body makes its own collagen, so you don't need to get that from bone broth. Um, and the whole idea of adopting diets from our ancients, um, they live to be 30, 35, 38. <laughs> um, a study from CSIRO came out just today saying that 38 is the um, DNA-based lifespan of a human and because of our um, good medical care and healthy diets, we managed to extend that into our 80s and 90s now. Um Ancient people didn't live past 35, 38, uh, so they didn't need to worry about their long-term diet. They only needed to worry about their short-term diet and their reproductive health. So no, you don't need to drink collagen. Your body will make that yourself. And no, don't do what cavemen did because they all died young. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I don't know of any clinical trials on bone broth either. So um, a lot of people like it. You know, I'm always about sort of saying to my patients, you know, if you like it, you, you feel better on it then great. But always look at the ingredients because something like that can also be quite high in salt. So that would be probably my biggest concern with drinking that on a regular basis. So on that, when you have patients come to you, yeah, it's one thing to say to you, this is what you should be eating. But I feel like sometimes there's probably quite a lot of damage there that needs to be done, that mm-hmm. has been done. Mm-hmm. So do you, are we best to approach a diet in two phases, like a, a rebuilding of let's say, the stomach lining before we then start, you know, build, like let's say, use the metaphor, let's um, rework the ground before we build the house. Is that kind of like, is there two types of diets to help rebuild stomach lining before we try and put good microbiome back in? Nice analogy, Alex, yes. Loves <laughs> <That was> an <laughs> analogy. Uh, yeah. Um, I think when it comes to seeing people in private practice, it's really hard to say there's one approach that's going to fit everybody. So I really um, approach every individual on their own merits. Like what we're seeing now um, in practice is there's a lot of what we call disordered eating. So people have done a lot of these restrictive diets for years and years um, and they've just built up a whole bunch of food rules in their head. And so it can actually become, it's not a, a, a you know, a well-known eating disorder as such, but it's a, it's an unspecified eating disorder called disordered eating. Right. Can you also yeah. expand on actually what that is like to, so, so I see what you're saying. The moral of the story mm-hmm. is see nutritionists. There's yeah. no one right answer. But no. what is... A dietitian. See a dietitian. See a dietitian. Or a, accredited practicing dietitian or accredited practicing nutritionist. So I could be both. So can you yeah. tell me yeah. then what are the long-term effects then of someone who is restricting themselves on something when after a while, they like Adam was saying before, they might lose weight for a while, but then after a year, two years, what's starting to happen to their body? Yeah, so if they if they are restricting things and they're cutting out different food groups and that sort of thing, they are potentially damaging their microbiome. So um, we need to, I suppose, in the first instance, try to just relax some of those food rules that they may be carrying. And quite often my job is a lot around counselling in mm. some respects because it is more a mental health issue often and I'm often referring to like a counsellor or a psychologist to sort of work in tandem with me um, to be able to help them change their eating patterns and feel okay about that because, you know, it has been a lifetime sometimes of that that restrictive eating. And then getting back to the food again, preparation is something that Adam and I have spoken about a few times. Yep. Is that true or not? Should we prepare food one way or another to maximise the nutritional value of anything? Raw, not raw? I think it depends on the food. So like a carrot, um, you will get more nutrients out of that if you cook it. Um, whereas broccoli, for example, you'll lose more nutrients if you cook it. 
So, oh, can you go through some of the top <laughs> ones that might blow my mind? Is that all right? Because that's already. Oh, now you're putting me on the spot. Um, yeah, so tomatoes are another one. When you cook it, it releases the lycopene, which is really good for men's health, yeah, that's actually. Right. So, yeah, so some foods like that, I always encourage people to have a combination of cooked and raw vegetables. Mm. So, like if you're having a salad for lunch, then have your cooked veggies at dinner. So you're getting a range of nutrients. Right. So rather than going through the list and going, oh, cook, not cook, cook, yeah, not no, cook. Yeah, too hard. Just mix yeah. it up. That's right. Yeah, okay. Go broad and try to get, like when you go shopping, pick up something that you haven't eaten for a while, you don't even recognise what is that. I'm going to try and put that in my diet. So when we're talking about that diversity before, that's the sort of thing you want to do. Eat more seasonally, um, try and get something new every time you go shopping. Yeah. yeah. Whether or not we're cooking our tomatoes is not the thing that is wrong with any of our diets. No. Like that's tinkering around mm-hmm. the edges and that's interesting scientifically, but it's not going to change any, anyone's life. And no. diversity and variety, that's mm-hmm. what is in common for all the gold standard yep. diets. The Okinawan diet, the Nordic diet, Mediterranean diet, it's all about diversity. It's all about seasonal eating. That's the 90%. The we're talking about the 10, yeah. not even the yeah. 90%. This is the 1% we're talking about, that's which right. is interesting, yeah. but not. Yeah. The big bang for your buck. Focus on the things that are going to give you the biggest return with the smallest amount of investment, which is diversity, making sure that we're eating under the guidance of, of the food uh, recommendations. The Health Hacker with Adam McDougall. Probiotics. Everyone is flogging a a probiotic these days. Um, What are your personal thoughts on probiotics? One of the things people need to remember when they're buying probiotics commercially, whether it's in a food or in a supplement, is that each of those vendors will have their own proprietary strain. So you're getting one thing, one type of bacteria in those. Um, So they can be helpful if you've had um, dysbiosis for a reason. So your bacteria has been interrupted because you've been on a course of antibiotics, for example. They can be helpful in those situations. Um, But putting one thing back in when there's a real diversity of bacteria down there is not really what's necessary for most of us. Um, So really it's coming back to the, the prebiotics and feeding the good bacteria that are in there and letting them flourish rather than putting new ones in, that's important. That said, probiotic foods can be really good because probiotic foods, when you ferment foods with the bacteria, the bacteria actually can produce more nutrients and they can release nutrients from the foods that make them then easier for us to access. So fermented and probiotic foods are great, but taking a probiotic supplement is not recommended unless your doctor has told you to do it. Love it. Great answer. And I always recommend people have things like kefir and kimchi and and, um, sauerkraut. Can you expand on some of your favourite types of uh, probiotic foods? I love sauerkraut. um, And sauerkraut's just a good healthy food anyway, even before you think about the the bacteria um, and it's tasty and fun and you get to eat it with German sausages. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, yogurt is the easiest one in terms of probiotics. What type of yogurt? Sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, a lot of people don't know. There's so many yogurts Mm -hmm. now. You go into the supermarket, wow, there's so many yogurts. So be careful with your low-fat yogurts because they can be quite high in sugar and quite high in salt salt. So check the label. Um, I eat the Greek yogurt because it's higher in protein. Um, But I make sure I get a different brand of the Greek yogurt every time I go to the supermarket because each each one um, will have its own proprietary strain of bacteria that they use in the fermentation. So by changing each time, I'm getting the biggest diversity. And there's actually some new yogurts in the supermarket now that I won't mention by brand name that are actually made out of 
complex and natural cultures and not with single proprietary strains. You can mention it's not the ABC. Um, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's an Icelandic brand called Sikka. Yeah. Um, and it's it's got um, a whole bunch of um, different natural cultures in them. So that means you're getting the diversity, but I switch it up all the time and that way I know I'm getting a little bit of everything. And when I'm in the supermarket aisle looking for a yogurt, obviously the first thing to look for that's not going to help my gut health is sugar. So yogurts that are high in sugar or low fat as such. And looking on the label where it says cultures, so looking for one that has more variety in cultures. And make sure it actually says the word yogurt yep. um, and doesn't say something like dairy dessert or some kind of yogurt-like word because in Australia you can't use the word yogurt um, unless uh, it has a certain level of bacteria in it, which means that it's actually going to make it to your gut in a level that it can be used. Do you have any more supermarket hacks? Like that's fascinating. That's fascinating. <laughs> I've never thought about that. Like when you're shopping, what are the things that occur to you because you have this science where other people might not be aware? So, Nicole, you might actually have something you can jump in there. Uh, yeah. So, in terms of yogurts, for example, like I always teach my patients that four grams of sugar is one teaspoon. So, I think that's something that they can actually relate to. So, when they're looking at the packaging, um, they can then go, okay, this one's got 25 grams of sugar in it. So, how many teaspoons is that? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, it's sort of a bit more real for them to be able to make that comparison. But what I do find also is that people are quite focused on sugar and they may not necessarily be looking at the total energy in the food or the sodium in the food. So, so you know, teaching people how to read a label, it sounds pretty boring and some of those labels are quite small, but it can make a big difference to the quality of the product that you choose. Um is there, is there somewhere where, uh, see, labels is an interesting one that always throws me. Is it per serve? Is it the actual totalage? Yeah. Where, I feel like there should be yeah, a yeah. tutorial on reading a label. <laughs> I'll do it. I'll do it. Great. Okay. How do you read a label? So if you're, if you've got two products in your hands and you just go, well, what am I looking at here? That's when you're looking at the hundred gram column. So you can actually compare apples with apples yep. if you like. So then you've, you're looking at the exact same amount in each. Whereas if you're looking at how much you're going to eat, that's when you potentially look at the per serve. You just have to make sure that the manufacturer's serve yeah. is actually the serve that you would give yourself. Yep. Right. Can, um, can I jump in there and yeah, say sure. the per serve on a label is set by the food company and there's right. no rules about how they set it and they set it based on how much oh. they expect you to eat. So you could pick up two bottles of soy sauce. This happened to me recently. Two bottles of soy sauce. One has five mils as the serve. One has 50 mils. So you can't look at it and go, that's how much I'm meant to eat. That's how much I'm expected to eat. That's how much I should eat, will eat. That is completely arbitrary. And that's used for them to um, calculate when they say uh, this product has X amount of your daily protein per serve. They need to have some kind of evidence behind what they expect you to eat to be able to set that serve and make that claim. But it actually has nothing to do when we talk about serves in the dietary guidelines, nothing to do with so that. What the serving yeah. quantity is, though, did yes. it say five meals? Yeah. So at least you can. You, there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. You can go one's five. Yeah, that seems more realistic than fifty because I'm yeah. having fifty meals of soy sauce. Yeah, it's like one bag of chips is one serve. That's probably a yeah. bit high. Well, that yeah. happened to me recently. I walked in to buy yogurt for my kids. Even the hacker got. Oh, no. the hacker <laughs> got my my yeah. wife and I walked in the supermarket to buy some yogurts, and she came over with some yogurt, and I looked at the back, and it said two serves, and it was literally a seventy-five yeah, right. gram pouch of yogurt, which yeah. a kid sucks that down in. 
half a second. Two seconds, so, yeah. So that wasn't a proper serving no. size. But it, it, my it, wife said it was low in sugar because she looked at it and it said it had less than five grams of mm-hmm. sugar per serve, but it was actually two serves, so it made it 10 grams of sugar, yeah. which to me was too high. Yeah. And so for all the kids who are saying you don't need maths out in the real world, when are you <laughs> going to do that outside of school? Yeah. This is when you need it. But it can even change within the same product. Yep. You get one yogurt and it comes in small tubs. They'll call one small tub a serve and then you get the same yogurt in a large tub and suddenly that serve is twice as much, half as much, a quarter as much because it's all about expectations. And if they want to be able to say, this is your yogurt for the week, they just divide what's in there by seven. If they want to say this serves four people, they divide what's in there by four. So you can't even go, this is this brand of yogurt in big and small and think those numbers are going to match. Wow. It's a bit of a minefield. So, yeah, it yeah. really does come back to you knowing how much you would eat of that product and comparing it to that serve. But if you're ever confused, you can just look at the 100 grams. Yep. And certainly when you're comparing products, I would look at 100 grams. So what are your limits? Grams. So your limits are sugar? What would your limits on sugar be for um, 100 grams? Well, it depends on the product, okay. but they sort of suggest around 15 grams yep. in a product um, per So 15%, uh, per no more than 15% yep. of the product sugar, yep. Yes, and when it comes to sodium, they say like 120 milligrams per yep. 100 grams. So I think that one's quite key because yep. people um, like – we all eat too much salt, particularly when we're eating packaged yeah. products. So that one's a key one just to get in your brain, 120 milligrams per 100 grams, unless it's something like bread, which naturally requires more salt to make. Um, so they, they're a bit more lenient in that regard. They'd say 400 milligrams. But also it depends what else you're eating. So That's right. if you're picking mm. up a bread... But for the rest of the day, you're eating fruit and veg, yep. which are definitely not going to be high in mm-hmm. salt, then don't worry about it. But mm-hmm. if, if your diet consists primarily of processed and packaged foods, then you need to be more careful with those kinds of upper limits. But the more fresh foods that you can get in, the less salt and, and sugar and all those other things, because we add them not just to make food taste good, but to make it last longer. So packaged food's going to be higher in those things. So you've got to really think about it in the context of your entire diet rather than just going that food is good and that food is bad because... Yep. No food in isolation is good or bad. Yeah. The quality of our long-term diet is what matters. Yeah, and probably talks to the idea of basing your diet mostly around fresh food where yep. you can and not necessarily all packages. I get confused with sugar versus non-added sugar versus natural sugars. How does that all break down? I mean, am I worried about juice? Should I, like, <laughs> you know, things like that? Oh, it's natural sugar, they tell me, juice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? Like, what, what's going on there? How do I decipher that yeah. minefield? Yeah, so when you think about juice, if you were to have, you know, a glass of orange juice, you may have four or five oranges actually in that glass. So the thing that's probably missing is the fibre and then you've got a more concentrated hit of the sugar So it's not going in in the same way as what it would go in when you're actually eating the whole fruit because you haven't got the fibre to slow down the absorption of the sugar. So... So is the moral of the story, eat close to the source of what it was? That's right. Yeah, we're changing the format, you know. So, Or if you're having a juice, have a small amount, that sort of thing. So there'll be days where you want to have some, you know, so have a small amount. You've mentioned Mm. sodium a bunch of times in this episode. Why is salt such a problem? Um, I think, you know, when when we're talking about chronic disease and that sort of thing, um, particularly heart disease, it can be problematic in that regard because it can harden the artery wall. So we don't want to be adding a lot of salt to our diet. You know, we probably get some naturally from from fruit and veggies anyway, particularly vegetables. 
Um, so having a lot of added salt um, can just make things more difficult for our cardiovascular system. We do need some salt or we would die, but yeah. we don't need lots of salt mm -hmm. because it literally, the salt in our body will pull water into our blood, make our blood a higher volume, which is what increases your blood pressure. Doesn't happen to everyone. Some people are more sensitive to it than others. Some people can eat all the salt they want and never get high blood pressure. Um, but all the recommendations around salt are based on those of us who do respond. Right. So don't freak out about putting a bit of salt in your cooking for flavour, but be conscious of things that are predominantly coated in salt. Is that what you're saying? That's right. Great. So it's not necessarily... So don't cut it out. Don't do anything crazy like that. Not necessarily. Like it's, um, you know, like it's not the salt that we add to our cooking that's the problem. It's more the salt that's in packaged food that's the problem. Right. So what's yep. the difference? Can you expand on that? It, it's it's probably no different. It's probably just the volume. You know, if we're, we're getting more from, um, you know, tinned food particularly, um, they have to put salt in there often uh, like as a tomatoes There's or... a lot of hidden mm -hmm. salt. Mm. Um, so tin food gets demonised, but I don't think mm -hmm. it's the biggest problem. So there's lots of products that don't taste salty that have lots of salt mm. in them. Like? So um, if you go to the shop and buy a prepackaged cake or biscuits, for example, don't taste salty at all, taste very sweet, but they have a lot of salt in them because that's what makes them last a long time because what salt does that's is it pulls the water and it, it, the salt holds onto the water and then the bacteria can't grow. So that's one of the way we make foods last longer. Wow. So tin, tin veggies, rinse them if you're worried about it, but tin veggies are definitely not the biggest source of, of salt from processed foods in the Australian diet. It's the hidden, hidden salts in the sweet foods. There's a lot of confusion around diets and advice. So going back to that, that question, milk is a big one we get asked all the time. Low fat, you know, skim milk versus... Full fat milk, what would you recommend? I wrote an A2. article about this. Yeah, A2, <laughs> yeah. A2, well, give, A2 it give it to us. What's your... Um, so I, I did the maths on um, if you switched from uh, full fat to uh, low fat milk over a year and drank a latte, a large milky latte every day, um, that can actually add up to several kilos yep. um, in weight, just based on the difference in the kilojoule content. But... There is really good evidence that shows that people who eat full fat dairy, dairy eat less of everything else. So based on the, the core switch it out and healthy swaps is such a, a common thing that people like to think is a hack, but you've got to think of it in the context of the whole diet because yes, you could maybe lose eight kilos if you switched your latte every single day, but you might then eat more energy from your other foods throughout the rest of the day because fat helps keep you fuller longer. So going low fat isn't necessarily a solution. And I would really just say, drink the milk you like. Yep. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's a great, great answer. And a lot of people don't realize it's weight loss. If your goal is weight loss, isn't just calories in versus calories out. There's obviously the gut microbiome. There's obviously the hormonal response, ghrelin, leptin. You know, it's behavioural change as well. So there's a whole multifaceted approach to solving that problem of gaining weight. But what about veganism? What that's trending at the moment? Something that's very popular. Um, what's your thoughts on that at the moment? Game changes the movies. Obviously, having a big impact. Every single person I bump into now goes, "I'm going on a vegan diet." They last about a week. Um, <laughs> or they're on a vegan diet. They're eating twisties and yeah. you know <laughs> shapes biscuits. But um, you know, what's your thoughts on the vegan trend? I think any diet can be healthy and any diet can be unhealthy. It really depends, like you say, how it's put together. Yeah. So you can be a really unhealthy vegan. <laughs> so, um, and veganism is not just about cutting out meat, mm -hmm. you know, and hoping for the best. That's not necessarily going to make sure that you're getting all the nutrients that you need. So if, if you do want to go vegan or you're really committed to that sort of lifestyle approach, 
you can actually do that in a healthy way. But if you're unsure, I would say definitely speak to a health professional about that. And it's worth investing in it if you want to make it a lifelong um, choice. What about you, Dr. Emma? What's your thoughts? Well, I I think previously most people who were vegan were vegan for ethical reasons as opposed to health reasons. And it's definitely been um, more trendy lately to to go a plant-based diet uh, for health reasons. Uh, but you do need to be careful on a on a plant based diet that you know things like uh, vitamin B twelve um, you're only going to get that from the animal products so you need to either supplement or things like activated yeast for that um, but also it, it's being twisted as a trend into anything plant based is therefore healthy yeah um, and you know we've got all these fake meats now that you know they're just as processed as, as <laughs> anything else. Um, and there's no evidence that being vegan or vegetarian improves health outcomes compared to people on a normal, healthy, balanced right. diet. Yeah. So I don't want to be boring, yeah, but yeah. it comes back ah, to you don't need to right. be extreme in either direction, that you do need to have yeah. the variety and get the fruit and the, fruit and the veg and the cereal and the dairy and the, the meat. And if you don't want to eat the meat, fine, replace that with the legumes. If you don't want to eat the dairy, fine, place that replace that with dairy alternative. But the big ones that you cannot replace, that you do need to have a healthy, balanced diet, is your fruit and veg and your cereals and grains. Yeah, brilliant. And that's the message we try to promote here is obviously diversity and, and being sensible. And what works for you might not work for somebody else. So, ladies, thank you so much for coming in. I think it happens quite often in these conversations and it's never a sexy answer. It's the beige Volvo, it's the compound in- interest, it's the kind of slow change and build and smart choices that we do to be healthy. If you can surmise each of you individually, what are the key things that we need to do, which are those beige and boring, but it's okay, things to increase our gut health and our overall health, what would that be? I'll start with you, um, Dr. Emma. Um, I'd go back to what I said before and say get more of the good things in. So get more of your fruit, veg, cereals and whole grains. Um, and, and focus. But not all cereals or cereals, not the sugary ones, stay away from them. High fibre cereals. Yep, so the good ones. Yep, definitely. Fruit, veg, high fibre cereals and whole grains, um, which is what is coincidentally recommended in the Australian Dietary Guidelines. Um, so go back to basics, focus on getting those good things in um, and stop stressing about all the other things that will give you a healthy gut and a healthy body every time. Nicole? I think it is really the fibre message at the end of the day. So like if we just broke it down, um, starting the day with a high fibre cereal is a really good idea. So Maybe you get something like Emma said, like All Brand or Sultana Brand, something like that, Guardian. Um, then by um, morning tea, you might have some nuts with a piece of fruit. Lunch, you might have a whole grain sandwich with salad on it. In the afternoon, you may have some yogurt and berries, something like that. And then you've got your lean protein or legumes with vegetables and uh, whole grain in the evening. So it's just, you know, getting that fibre spread across the day, but generally increasing the fibre in your diet. Can you explain to me the difference between, you've mentioned earlier, fibre, soluble and insoluble fibre? So soluble fibre dissolves in water um, and insoluble fibre doesn't. Um, The insoluble fibres are normally your prebiotics and your soluble fibres are normally that roughage, that bulk in the gastrointestinal tract. Now, people get confused on that often and over-focus on soluble versus insoluble and often what you're getting there is 
added fibres, where they've taken fibre from somewhere else and put it into a food. Um, so I, I think keep it simple and just look for high fibre foods and eat a variety of high fibre foods because there's different types of insoluble fibres, different types of soluble fibres. If we're eating a high variety of high fibre foods, we get them all in and it's fine. Um, and even though the the soluble fibres are the, the mostly the prebiotics, the ones that gut bacteria actually eat, there's lots of research that the insoluble fibres are actually important for that um, environment that the bacteria live in because a lot of what is in our gut is that that fibre that hasn't been digested. So that's, that's the home for the gut bacteria. So you've got to feed them and give them the right place to live. So you need both of them. And if you start focusing too hard on individual ones, that's when you're going to get distracted by the people adding things high variety, high fiber foods, and you can't go wrong. Brilliant. Emma, Nicole, thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks for having us. And remember, if there's a health question that you want Adam to hack into or we can try and find people to help us hack it like we did on this episode, hit Adam up, healthhacker at themanshake.com.au on his Manshake socials or manshake.com.au. He's always got prize packs to give away for people who get in touch or just leave a comment underneath the podcast. Health Hacker was created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Written and presented by Adam McDougall. Produced and presented by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. To listen to more episodes, search Health Hacker Podcast. Listen for free at podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the Podcast One Australia app.